Lord willing, we want to look at 2 Samuel 15 and 16. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Lord, we spread out our hearts before your throne because we spread out our minds before your word. And we ask that you would lift up our hearts by even this passage as it drives us to your Son, our Savior. Enable us to see clearly how it is that the eschatological David recapitulates the protological David and does so in glorious fashion. His exile, our restoration. His death, our resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to begin with uh, the narrative interface here, or the character interface. I'm using a variation on that motif of the narrative ripples. And we meet here uh, three characters uh, whom we have not met before. And I want to think uh, with you for a moment about how they interface or how they uh, uh, inter-ripple with uh, other characters. The first one, of course, is Ahithophel. And uh, for those of you that have read the chapter or know the story, who would you say that Ahithophel uh, interfaces with? Since we haven't had any mention of him before, it's likely that he's going to interact with somebody that is in front of us, and that would be Hushai, who is also introduced in this chapter. The second character, uh, actually the third one since I've mentioned Hushai, uh, the second is Ittai. And this is an interesting uh, character ripple or character interface. Do you have any suggestions about who Ittai might interface with? Ling? No. Actually, we're looking backwards for him. He interfaces with Uriah. Or Uriah is a foreigner as Ittai is. He is a foreign soldier as Ittai is. And Uriah is a foreign believer as Ittai is. And the next uh, group are actually the two, Zadok and Abiathar, who interface with the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem back in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So we have some uh, uh, flowing ripples, some uh, interface of character overlap, uh, which is going to dramatize or increase the narrative drama in this chapter. Now we have some uh, little structural notes, particularly in the first 12 verses. Now, you will notice that there is a section of narrative that ends in verse 6a. And then you have the phrase in 6b, stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. 
Now, if you glance down to the end of uh, verse 12, you'll notice that verse 13 also includes that very same phrase, stole away or the hearts of the men of Israel are mentioned. So we have a bracketing device there, uh, a section of narrative that concludes with a statement about the hearts of the men of Israel, and then a second narrative unit that concludes with the very same statement, hearts of the men of Israel. So we can say that we have a narrative section 1 to 6a, and then a second narrative section 7 to 12. Reinforcing that division is a a noun-verb sequence that is also duplicated in verse 1. You read in your English version that Absalom provided for himself a chariot. Actually, provided is a strong interpretation of a Hebrew word, asa, which means he did something. So Absalom plus the verb to do something in verse 1. In verse 6, you will notice that that very same pattern repeats itself. Absalom dealt with all Israel. It's once again the same structure, Absalom plus the verb, saw he did something. So verses 1 to 6 are bracketed by the same similar uh, language. In verse 7, the uh, New American Standard translates at the beginning, uh, now it came about, or and it came about, or and it happened, or something of that sort. Uh, It's a single Hebrew word, but you'll find that that single Hebrew word repeats itself at the end of this narrative unit, namely 6 or 7 to 12, in verse 12. It's a little difficult to see the similarity because your English virgins translate the phrase a little differently, and uh, they don't translate it, uh, now it came about. They translate it, and the conspiracy was strong. At least that's the way a New American Standard has it in the second part of verse 12. It is the very same single Hebrew word that begins verse 7, meaning it came about or it happened. And so we could actually render verse 12, and it happened that the conspiracy was strong, or it came about that the conspiracy was strong. So once again, our narrator has uh, established some structural elements that um, bracket or line off or demarcate his narrative sections here. And he's doing that in order to draw attention to the increasing dramatic tension that is rising with Absalom's rise. All right, back to verse 1. It came about that after this, after what? After David received Absalom back, all right, or how long had Absalom been in David's city before he came into his presence? Ben? Two years. All right, so after this may, in fact, refer all the way back to verse 28 of chapter 14, indicating that what Absalom now begins to do has been two years in preparation two years in deliberation. What's the significance of this entourage? He brings himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as running in front of himself. 
Uh, if you have a marginal cross-reference there, you may note a First uh, Kings chapter 1, verse 5 note, and it might be well to turn to that passage just for a moment. First Kings 1, 5, <clears throat> in which we uh, read the story of Adonijah, who prepares for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. Now, the question is, if Adonijah is doing this, uh, why is he doing it? And does that tell us why Absalom is doing it? So, let's go with Adonijah and see if Scripture can help us interpret Scripture so that we understand what's going on here. Why is Adonijah recruiting a chariot, horses, and 50 runners to go before him? He wants to be king. Very good. So this entourage is a royal procession. And actually, it's a royal entourage in which he's laying claim to the throne. And Absalom is doing the very same thing here in Second uh, Samuel chapter 15. Notice his stance. All right. If you're riding in a chariot, what's your stance? What's your position? You're standing, okay? Notice verse 2. What's his stance? And he's standing at the gate. Verse 5, what's his stance? If somebody is prostrating themselves before you, what's your stance? You're standing. All right. So he's standing in each of these instances. He is standing. He is making himself an image of grandeur. He is making himself a impressive item. He's showing a kind of flair in which his visibility is ostentatiously present. He's making himself a public image. He's manufacturing himself as a poster boy. So. All in the city of the king who knows everything. All right, I'm going back to verse 20 of chapter 14, where the woman of Tekoa says that David knows all things, and yet he knows no thing. He knows nothing about what Absalom is doing, because David and Absalom are remote Still remote, though they're in the same city, Absalom and the people, notice the phrase all Israel in verse 6, are proximate. They are together, while David knows nothing of what is going on. We remark once more upon David's lack of knowledge or interest or awareness of what's going on in his kingdom around him, even with his third-born son. All right, Absalom is playing political theater. He is manufacturing himself as a political item. And in verse 2, he demonstrates the fact that, like many politicians, he is a demagogue. He is a demagogue. He is sowing sympathy in verse 2 by creating dissension and building prejudice against the rulers 
who are in charge of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And that's what a demagogue does. He preaches a kind of sympathy for those who are out of favor and sows dissension in order to build an animosity against the prevailing regime. And so Absalom uses flattery, flattery in cases of justice. He feigns concern with those who are victims of injustice and becomes, in verse 3, the ostensible champion of the oppressed. That's always an easy way into the spotlight, isn't it? To pretend to be a champion of the downtrodden and the oppressed. It'll gain you an immediate spot on the evening news because you are standing up for the underdog. And as a result, in verse 4, he promises change. He promises change in Jerusalem, change in the nation of Israel. And he promises change on the basis of his pledge to bring justice to the city and to the nation for the first time, or at least for the first time in recent memory. Absalom is a perfect politician. He knows precisely how to flatter the masses and how to play upon their sympathies in order to get them to think that he is a great deliverer, he is the man for the hour, and he will lead them into some future promised land of pure justice and freedom. Is he proximate to his petitioners? Is he proximate to his petitioners? No, he's not. He may be near them physically, but you will notice that there are no details of the cases they present. There are no petitions that are listed in which you can evaluate what he is responding towards. And, in fact, the only thing that he's concerned about is what? Verse 2. Verse 2. The only thing he's concerned about is what city do you come from? So when you go back, I want you to tell everybody in that city about me. So my Gallup poll numbers, of course, will go up. I want you to play this on the home front that you saw the great promiser of change and justice in Jerusalem. I want you to take that back home with you and tell everybody in your village or your city that I have the ear of the oppressed and the uh, unjustly treated. But no details, you see. No details of these petitions because Absalom alone does the talking. You don't hear any speech from the aggrieved, do you? There are no words from their mouths. There are no cases presented. And why do you not hear of any specific grievances? Just this broad, I'll take care of all your problems, this umbrella, I'm the Redeemer. 
I'm the Messiah. I'm the deliverer. I'll take care of you. Why don't you hear any details? Because the narrator wants you to know that Absalom doesn't care about the grievances, really. He really doesn't care about the details. He's not concerned about the the, uh, substance of your oppression. All he's concerned about is becoming a political manipulator, dominator, power broker, and ruler. That's all he's concerned about. That's what drives him. That's what moves him. No real empathy with the masses, with the problems, with the issues of injustice. He is an ambitious politician. And he knows the way to power. All right, now, what is this ambition? Yes, to be king, but that means what else? He has to subvert, he has to remove the previous administration, doesn't he? He has to get rid of his father. He has to overthrow his daddy. That's his ambition. That's what's really driving him to stand at the gate. That's what's really making him this poster boy political figure as he stands there while people prostrate themselves before his feet. And he says, well, if I were really in charge, if we could get rid of this old fashioned administration, then there would be real change in Jerusalem. Just you listen to me. I will deliver you. Well, in verse 5, we have to ask the significance of Absalom kissing those prostrate. Why is he doing this? Because his father did it to him, didn't he? Because his father kissed the renegade son when he came back in verse 14, and so now the renegade son kisses the others in order to mirror himself and assume the role of David to the prostrate. He's already <laughs> taking the role that was administered to him by the king in the previous scene in chapter 14. So Absalom mirrors David. He mirrors David at the gate. He mirrors David as the champion of justice. He mirrors David in kissing the prostrate subjects. He wants to show himself as the perfect mirror of David, his father. Where is David? Remote, distant, not at the gate, not kissing his aggrieved subjects, not meeting out justice in the face of injustice. Where is David? David is remote. 
from the locus of alienation. And the fact that David is remote only feeds the alienator's exploitation. Weakness, but begets more and more grief. David will rue the day. He did not come to stand in the gate. Verse 6 uses the word stole away the hearts. We referred to that as a literary marker previously this evening, but I want to take this Hebrew word for stole away, and I want you to note that it is used in Genesis chapter 31, verses 20 and 27, in the story of Jacob and his uncle Laban, where Jacob deceives Laban, deceives is the very same word used here for stole away. Now you understand what's underneath Absalom's movements. He is deceiving the people. He is a political deceiver. But the people that come to the gate lap it up because every underdog wants a champion. And every shrewd politician knows how to use the underdog and pretend to be the champion. Now we come to the second scene in these uh, opening uh, verses, namely verses 7 to 12. And in verse 7, uh, we have a textual problem. Uh, the New American Standard says it came about at the end of 40 years. Uh, does any of your, do any of your versions as you read it, I'm not asking you to look at the margin, but any of your versions as you read it, did they have anything else there? Four or, years. Four years. What version, Pete? Uh, NIV. The NIV has four years. Okay. All right. <clears throat> now, in your uh, NASB margin, you will also notice that there is four in the marginal note. And, of course, 40 here makes no sense. Uh, we can't rationalize it on the basis of, well, maybe it's a reference to Absalom being 40 years old because he's not 40 years old. He's younger than that. David would only reign uh, in Hebron and Jerusalem for 40 and a half years. And Absalom was born in Hebron, so he's younger than 40 years at this point. Uh, consequently, we have a likely copyist error uh, in the text. And the NIV, which is reading... Uh, two major manuscripts, namely the Septuagint and the Syriac Peshitta, which is a very old uh, um, Aramaic version of the Old Testament. Uh, both of those manuscripts read four, and that's the reason some of your more modern versions have four instead of 40, which makes more sense in the context as well. We don't have an error of inspiration. We have an error of copying and transmission. And so that's the reason we look at older manuscripts and we compare uh, texts with texts. We look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and we look at other items in order to see that we have the most reliable text before us. It's a minor issue, but nonetheless, it's an obvious instance of something which uh, in its context uh, has to be a copious mistake. Now, to his fawning deceit or his uh, lying in uh, the first six verses, uh, 
Absalom now adds religious hypocrisy. The demagogue wraps himself up in religion, and you will notice in verses 7 and 8 that he actually trebles the name of God or Lord three times. He has the name Yahweh on his lips as if to make it thrice over emphatic that he is a religious devotee. Once again, we've been told that he's a deceiver in verse 6, and so we don't change his M.O. when we come to verse 7. He's a deceiver again, but why Hebron? Why go to pay his vow in Hebron? Ling? Number one, his father was crowned king in Hebron first, all right? So he wants to go back to where... The previous act of coronation occurred. Why else did he want to go back to Hebron? He had lots of relatives there. Well, you're getting warm, but you're not you're not hot yet. He was born there. So in chapter three, verse three, he's one of the six that was born in Hebron. So this is a hometown return. It is an ostensible excuse that would make sense to David. And there's potentially one more reason why he wants to go to Hebron. <clears throat> What's the significance of Hebron in Israel history, Israelite history? Does that have something to do with Abraham? Yes, it's where Abraham first sojourned. Very good, Kay. So it's a patriarchal shrine. All right, so... He's going to not only align himself with the place of his nativity, okay, hometown boy coming home, successful hometown boy coming home, all right, but he's going to align himself with his father's coronation there. Oh, you remember how daddy was coronated? Oh, okay, well, I'm going to get crowned here too, okay. And number three, and oh, yes, Abraham, yes, revered Abraham. I'm coming to pay my religious vows in the place where Abraham sojourned with. I'm in a holy environment, you see. It's like taking a pilgrimage, right? Okay, all right, you get the idea. Absalom knows how to play the political card. He knows how to play the crowd-pleasing card, and he knows how to play the religion card. How many politicians have learned that game? All right. Now in verse 8, what should David say? What should David say? Your servant vowed a vow, and I want to go to Hebron to fulfill my vow. What should David say? Why do you know to go to Hebron? To serve the Lord. Exactly. The Ark of the, of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord is here in Jerusalem. Isn't it? Why do you need to go to Hebron? Huh? huh? If you want to serve the Lord, here's where the tabernacle, the priest, the offering, this, this is where you can serve the Lord. But David never peers into Absalom's heart as he peered into his own heart. Why is it that David can penetrate into the depths of his own against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight and not look at Absalom and say, 
What sin is, de- is, is erupting out of the depths of your own heart, my son? Huh? What are you up to? You conniving renegade? You've already murdered your half-brother. What's going on inside that mind of yours? I want to go pay a religious vow. This is David just wilts. Oh, oh, this is a religious vow. Absalom's been re- been reformed. He's been regenerated. Here, here, here's a man who's got religion. Okay, go go get religion. Go get more religion, Absalom. And so we ask ourselves, what was the vow that Absalom vowed in Gesher? Some two years before or perhaps even five years before. Because he was in Gesher three years. And he's been two years in Jerusalem since he returned. So what's this vow he vowed? Going to serve the Lord? Not on your life. The vow that he vowed in Gesher was, I'm going to take my father's head off. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that crown off of his pate. I'm going to put it on mine. I'm going to kill him in the process if I can get a hold of his neck. That's what I'm going to do. That's the vow I vowed. And he covers it with this lie about wanting to do religious service to the Lord. How many... Hypocrites hide behind religious vows when, in fact, what's moving them is a deviance that's going to use religion for their own personal purposes. Absalom is the incarnation of the Antichrist. Now, what I'm saying here about the phrase Antichrist is using the term Christ or Mashiach in Hebrew in its literal sense. He is anti the anointed of the Lord. The anointed of the Lord is Christos in Greek. So he is an antichrist in that sense. He is the arch rebel who opposes the anointed of the Lord, namely his father. And it is not just his father. It is the one who has received the unction of God. So that in lifting up his sword against David, Absalom lifts up his sword against the Lord and against his anointed. He's attacking God here. And he cultures himself with religious hypocrisy. Well, in verse 9... There is an irony that grabs us with its tragic poignancy. You sense it. No, it's not just the irony. Go in shalom. And Absalom will bring no shalom. When he goes. But it's the haunting irony that this is the last 
word David ever speaks to Absalom. This is the parting word of father to son. And you know the tragic outcome of this farewell. In verse 10, all the tribes are to hear the sound of the trumpet and the proclamation that Absalom is king in Hebron. Why should they listen? Why should they look? David is king in Jerusalem. Why should they listen? Absalom is king in Jerusalem. All the tribes. Why should they listen to that? Because of verse 2. He's already primed them to be ready. He's already recruited them. He's already softened up the hinterlands. Everybody who kissed his hand, whose hand he kissed and sent back to their city, knows that Absalom is the man. He's the rising man. He's the man that came to the gate. And I kissed it. He kissed my hand and he listened to my, my grief. He listened to my cry for deliverance. That's the reason he sent them back to their cities, wanted to know what city they were from, so he could have a following, another entourage, not with chariots and 50 men running ahead, but in every city where he had greeted these folks for four years at the gate in Jerusalem, he had a bevy of loyal followers. And that's the reason he's confident that when the cry is is raised, all Israel will respond to him. Verse 11. Notice these 200 men who went innocently, meaning they didn't know anything about what Absalom was really up to. He had hidden it from them. But they are dupes in this drama, just like David. They don't know anything, even as David doesn't know anything, and they are being snared by this rebel sinner, even as David is going to be displaced by this rebel sinner. Verse 12. Absalom sent for Ahithophel, David's counselor. Now, this is David's chief counselor. And he comes with very high credentials, though you don't learn them until the 16th chapter. So looking ahead just for a moment, turn to chapter 16, verse 23. And you will notice... How high was the esteem that Ahithophel had before David and all Israel? His counsel was as if one inquired of the word of God or of an oracle of God. What he delivered in counsel to David, in counsel to the king's advisors, was as it were. An oracle of God. 
Why does Absalom need Ahithophel? He's already got most of Israel behind him anyway. Why does he need Ahithophel? He wants to legitimate his new administration. So he takes one key figure from the previous administration who has a great deal of respect across the political boards and he puts them in a figurehead place in his own administration. He's no dumb politician. He knows that he's going to get cooperation from the opposition. You better have at least one key opposition party member on your side or somebody that served in the previous administration coming over to you. So that it'll make you look as if you're very generous and cooperative. And you can reach across the aisle to anybody, right? As long as it doesn't get in the way of your agenda. So Ahithophel comes to Absalom. In that 12th verse, it says, while he was offering sacrifices. Who's the he? Who's the antecedent of the pronoun here? It's Absalom. It's not Ahithophel. Remember, Absalom had said he's going to go to pay his religious vow in Hebron, and part of that would be making sacrifices. So the ambiguous pronoun here is actually referring to Absalom, not Ahithophel, even though Ahithophel would be the closest antecedent to that pronoun. (coughs) But why does Ahithophel come to Hebron? Ah, why does this man who's been the chief counselor of David for how many years? We don't really know how many years, but why? Loyal to David and his administration, why all of a sudden, when Absalom summons him, does he bolt? What's driving Ahithophel? Power? What power? He already has power. He's got power, he's got power with David. You're right. He's not being a very good king. I agree. But is Ahithophel without power in that situation? He's got a place in office. Nobody's threatening his position. David really reigns all the way from the Euphrates to the book of Egypt. So here's a counselor who's got plenty to do probably in talking about what other things are going on which David's not paying any attention to. But Absalom says, come to Hebron, and in the drop of a hat, he goes to Hebron. Why? Why? What's driving Ahithophel? All right. We need to turn to chapter 23, verse 34. 2 Samuel chapter 23 Verse 34. And there's your answer to what's driving Ahithophel. 
And you look up at me and you say, what have you been smoking, Dennison? Thirty-four, twenty-three, thirty-four. What's the key word there? What's the key name there? No. The key name there is not Ahithophel. The key name there is Eliam. Who is Eliam? He is a mighty man. Good. Who is he? Come on, who is he? He is Bathsheba's father. He is Bathsheba's father. Second Samuel 11, verse 3. Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Well, here is Eliam, one of David's mighty men, and who at the bottom of verse 23, of chapter 23, rather, who is the last of the mighty men to be named? Verse 39, Uriah the Hittite. Ah, now is the picture coming together. Here is Uriah a mighty man of David. Here is Eliam, a mighty man of David. Here are these two comrades in arms. And in the process of comrades in arms, Uriah meets his comrade buddy's daughter and marries her. And who is grandpa? Who is grandpa to Bathsheba? Ahithophel is... Bathsheba's grandpa and Ahithophel, Eliam now is has a son-in-law named Uriah, who was a comrade in arms, one of the mighty band of David's personal bodyguard and advance seals or rangers or whatever special forces division you want to label them. And you know what happens in those close quarters with special forces that have to live or die at the drop of a hat. They get real close to one another, don't they? They really bond. You talk about male bonding? There it is. It's male bonding. Uriah and Eliam, yeah, we're like this. We're like this. And Dad knew it. Dad knew it. Ahithophel knew it. Ahithophel knew how tight they were. He know how devoted they were to one another. And then when that scum bucket David killed my son's my son's son-in-law and stole his wife, I vowed a vow. I vowed a vow that someday I'd get even. All right, now there are those that think that the Eliam of chapter 11, verse 3, and the Eliam of chapter 23 are two different Eliams. You obviously detected that I don't agree with that because I don't think there are any other options for Eliams in the narrative. In other words, the fact that they're both mentioned in 2 Samuel suggests to me that the narrator is putting these keys together so that we'll follow the clues, we'll make the conjunctions. 
Otherwise, how do you account for Ahithophel walking away from his, what, $2 million a year job or something, you know, cushy benefits and everything else? I mean, obviously I'm being facetious here, but you get my point. Why walk away from Jerusalem? Huh? Why walk away from the most prestigious king in the history of Israel? Granted, there have only been two, but nonetheless, he rules all the way from the Euphrates River to the Brook of Egypt. Why walk away from such a prominent position unless you're nursing a grudge, unless there's something that's come up that allows you to think, aha, his comeuppance has finally come. You know that line from the Magnificent Ambersons, if you know the Magnificent Ambersons, either the book or the film, he'll get his comeuppance, he'll get his comeuppance, and it finally does. Well, Ahithophel, longing to see David get his comeuppance, and when Absalom sounds the trumpet and summons Ahithophel, he's on his donkey right quick. Ling? You can propose any balderdash you wish. <laughs> Maybe he's just seeing opportunity to protect his family since he is now also the great-grandfather of one of the king's sons. He is actually, his granddaughter is now married into the royal family. And uh, so perhaps he just looks at, well, Absalom is next in succession. He looks like the brightest candidate to take over. Maybe, and, and we know he has a history of killing his brothers. So <laughs> maybe if I can get in good with him, I can protect my family. Which amounts to betraying and deceiving the king to whom he's been loyal. So we've got a moral problem here, right? For some reason, he's driven to make an immoral decision, an immoral decision which betrays loyalty, uh, devotion, uh, his steadfastness in his office as an oracle of God. You don't give him that kind of qualification in chapter 16 unless he's built himself up to it. In other words, he's, been not- he's become famous for this kind of notoriety, therefore he gets this recognition. For him to turn his back on that, you see, is for him to be doing something that is devious in its own right. He's simply following Absalom's deviant pal- uh, pattern, in my opinion, and he's doing it for ulterior reasons. In other words, I think there's something driving him, and that's the reason the narrator makes the link between the families. <clears throat> that's my opinion. So I dismiss your romantic uh, suggestion as balderdash. <laughs> but but thank you for trying. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the game, I, I don't often win that game, balderdash, as you know. So, so conse- consequently... Uh, <laughs> expediency. He sees the, the, the one that's weak and the one that's strong, and he's going with what his eyes tell him rather than what his faith tells him. Not, not where we're in a, a chapter narrative where the characters that are on the other side are taking a position of uh, deception and deceit. In other words, I think the fact that his characterization occurs in this unit is an indication that he's joined the opposition in its deviance and deceit. Scott? Could we possibly wed your two positions together and say that 
you're essentially correct about his motivation, but perhaps secondarily he may have a secondary motivation to say, ah, if I do this, I'll be able to protect my family. I will brook no liberal reconciliation of the two extremes of this suggestion. I respect the honored professor's attempt, but I'm sticking to my ground here. All right. Now, moving on in this 15th chapter, we now encounter a larger narrative or literary envelope, a narrative bracket that binds together the rest of this chapter. And it begins with the mention of Absalom in verse 13, and it folds around to verse 37 and the mention of Absalom again. So between verses 13 and 37, which are inaugurated with an Absalom's name and concluded with Absalom's name, we have motion and commotion. We have a great deal of marching out, stopping, starting again, passing over, returning back, going up, ascending, even weeping as they are going. A crisis which is precipitated by Absalom provokes hasty and chaotic motion. If you go through this section and pick out the verbs of movement, you'll become overwhelmed with them. You see, you're always on the move. The narrator has just peppered this section with these verbs of movement, action, and action, etc. It's as if we, as the reader, are caught up in the urgency, in the chaos, in the hubbub, in the agitation which has been produced by Absalom's insurgency. All right, notice that this unit... in addition to to opening with Absalom's name, also opens with a messenger or one who is telling something. It's actually a Hebrew participle, one telling David who is and what he is saying. Okay, so a messenger telling David saying thus and so. Now in verse thirty-one, you will notice the very same pattern. A messenger, someone telling David, saying. So we have in this unit, as all this motion is occurring, we have people reporting to David. We have two messengers coming to him, which break up this uh, overall narrative, uh, this large narrative section into at least two smaller subsections. And so we're going to look for uh, some patterns of a literary drama in this unit and see if, in fact, we have some, uh, up, uh, some uh, unfolding tension and uh, dramatic uh, uh, power or dramatic drama. Uh, redundant, but you get the point. All right, in verse 14, we have the messengers telling David uh, producing movement. David says, let us arise and flee. And in verse 17, they actually arise and flee. All right, so verses 14 and 17 are David getting on the move. And then in verses 19 to 22, we have a conversation. We have a dialogue 
between David and Ittai. So, movement followed by conversation. Verse 23. Movement. David passes over the brook Kidron, followed by conversation. This time with Zadok, verses 25 to 28. Once again, the same pattern. Movement, conversation. Ittai, first. Zadok, second. Next, notice verse 30. Movement, David goes up the Mount of Olives. And then we encounter that messenger formula again. Someone comes to report to David, and there follows a conversation. I'm sorry, there follows another section of movement. The conversation is the report that David receives there in verse 31. I apologize for skipping over that. All right, verse 32. Then David approaches the the summit of the Mount of Olives. And that is followed by a conversation with Hushai, verses 33 to 36. Notice the paradigm introduces Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai. The narrator brings these characters into the drama in a stereotypical narrative style. That is, each one appears on David's path as David is moving further and further away from Jerusalem. All right, in verse 14, David says that they must make haste to flee. This is in stark contrast to David's passive behavior, his inactivity, his impotence in the face of Amnon's rape of Tamar, of Absalom's murder of Amnon, and of Absalom's fomenting rebellion and alienation at the gate of David's very own capital city. Those incidents of Amnon, Absalom in revenging Tamar, and Absalom again in betraying his father have produced denials in David. Passive, inactive, impotent denial. Denial, denial, denial. And now David is jarred into action. Make haste to flee. Why? Why? He didn't make haste to deal with Absalom before. Why now make haste to flee from the renegade son who is coming, and David knows it, coming to kill him? Finally got his attention. attention. What's the instinct that's driving David now, Bob? Self-preservation. Self-preservation, exactly, exactly. If I'm going to save my neck, I better get out of here because he's not going to let me live. If he catches me here in Jerusalem, I'm a dead duck. So self-preservation drives David. It's a very good reaction, isn't it? Self-preservation. Very good reaction. Saves you from a lot of trouble, a lot of grief, doesn't it? It should. It should, because you're commanded to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You're commanded to love yourself in the sense of preserve your own life. Yes, it's a moral mandate. 
Even self-defense is a moral mandate. So, David is finally stirred by something. Namely, if I want to live to see tomorrow, I'd better escape today. And he says, let us do it quickly. Quickly. What has he done quickly for the last five years? Virtually nothing. All right? And notice, lest this bring calamity upon us. That's a poor translation of the word that's used in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is evil. Lest he bring evil upon us. And notice, notice how the narrator juxtaposes that word evil against verse 3. Guy's a master. What does Absalom promise? He promises good, doesn't he? And what does David say? This isn't good. This is evil. This is evil coming down upon our heads. And so the narrator is once again making you see exactly what Absalom is up to. He's not up to any good at that gate. He's up to wicked, evil deviance. That's what he's up to. And David labels it for what it is. Now, he's going to flee in haste, quickly. Where is he going to flee? Where is he hightailing it to? To the desert. To the desert. Deja vu? Deja vu? Wiling? Good, very good. So, finally, has the old David been awakened? Is self-preservation, which drove him into the wilderness to save his life from Saul, and his deviant wickedness, his deceit, is that activating David once again? Has the old David returned? Question mark. Take your break and come back and we'll resume the story. Keep you in suspense somehow. And I want you to notice the uh, all terms in verses 16, 17, and 18. And the reason I want to draw your attention uh, to those uh, comprehensive alls is because it does suggest that David is not without his own loyal followers. Uh, There are uh, a group of people that are going with him. And in verse 18, uh, we notice that the character 
of one particular uh, uh, branch of those that are going with him is that they are foreigners. Foreigners who are more loyal than David's own son, David's own Jerusalem inhabitants in some cases. Uh, They're listed there, the Cherethites, perhaps from Crete, who had settled on the coast of uh, Philistia or on the Gaza Strip, so to speak, uh, along with the Pelethites, who were also perhaps Philistines, uh, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, as well as the Philistines, being part of that massive uh, immigration of the so-called Sea Peoples that came around 1200 B.C. after the collapse of Troy uh, thereabouts. And with the collapse of Troy, there was a tremendous reflux of people fleeing uh, from the Greeks uh, all across the uh, 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 the Mediterranean uh, Isles uh, there, and uh, many of them uh, became the uh, ancestors of the Philistines. That, that's one of the suggestions. And these Cherethites and Pelethites uh, may in fact have been a part of that same mass migration. Okay, notice in verse 19 that we have a little bracket, the king said, and then in verse 23, the king passed over. Uh, <clears throat> there's an irony here in verse 19, David is about to be an exile and go into exile, and Ittai is already an exile. He's already exiled himself from uh, his uh, native country. Uh, Notice in verse 20, the proximate and remote vectors. uh, You are close to me, but go away from me. So David is trying to reverse this uh, proximate relationship with uh, a remote uh, displacement of Ittai, and he underscores why he is urging him to leave him. Notice the phrase mercy and truth. It's a very powerful Hebrew combination. It includes hesed and emeth. That doesn't necessarily mean anything to you, though you've heard the word hesed before. Very strong word for grace, gracious mercy. David is blessing Ittai with the mercy and truth or the grace and truth of God. It go with you because only God is the source of such a thing. Notice what is bubbling up out of David's character in this duress. David is acknowledging God's mercy and grace as something that he understands, understands and blesses somebody else with the disposition of it. He commends it to him. And so we say that the seed of grace manifests itself here in David in spite of his uh, in, uh, his inactivity, in spite of his impotence, in fact, uh, in, in spite of his delinquence in dealing with his delinquent son. Verse 21. Now the marvel of Ittai. Ittai will not be remote from David. He will remain proximate. He will go as David goes. As David goes to exile, then Ittai will go into exile with him. For Ittai, it is only further exile since he's already exiled from his native land already. Notice who are brought together in this scene. Notice the remote and the proximate that are drawn together. The union of a Jew and a Gentile. Going eastward into exile. And they will not be broken in their bond of mercy and truth. 
This is powerful stuff. This is a powerful drama because Ittai says, as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. Is this an echo of Ruth and Naomi? (laughs) Is it something creeping out from David's lineage again? I won't press that too far, but what Ittai is saying is, I belong to the Lord who lives as you belong to the Lord who lives, and as you go, I will go. Gentile though I am, believer that I am, I will go with you, Jew that you are, believer that you are. So this identity of union in exile flows, arises, comes out of an identity and union in the Lord. They are bound together in the living Lord. As the Lord lives, Yittite, the mirror of another foreign believer in David's career. Yittite, the mirror of Uriah. The believing Hittite, whose first concern when he came to David's palace was the Ark of God. The Ark of God. These are amazing Gentile believers in the Old Testament era. And of course, Hittite is pledging. Identity and union with David in the supreme crisis. The supreme crisis. I will go with you even to death. The supreme crisis of life and death, Ittai embraces. I will go with you as you go, even into the face of death. Now we have another bracket in verse 24 with Zadok, who comes with the ark. And then you'll notice in verse 29, Zadok, who returns with the ark. And in between, we have this interesting acknowledgement in verses 25 and 26 of God's sovereignty, namely, at the supreme crisis in David's career here, He submits himself to the hand of God's sovereign disposition, whether it be for life in life or whether it be for death in death. But in verses 27 and 28, he balances his submission to the sovereignty of God by exercising human responsibility. He delegates a series of spies from the core of the priests priesthood of Zadok and Abiathar, that they will inform him of what is going on back in his capital city. So that as David is willing to bend himself to the overarching sovereignty of God, nonetheless, he now becomes active in pursuing data and information exercising his responsibility to stay on top of what's going on back in his former capital city. Combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility here balanced in this dialogue between David and Zadok. In verse 27, he says to Zadok, go back in peace. 
even as David hopes to go back as a king reborn in peace. David's ego has been placed under the good pleasure of God, even as his ego was subsumed to the chastening hand of God in the 51st Psalm. David is now beginning to look more and more like the David of grace. Now, I want you to look at verse 30. I have it outlined there on the sheet for you. You will notice that we have a very neat chiasm in this verse because the Hebrew verbs are precisely balanced. And so David went up and he wept. And he translated bareheaded or head covered. Many of your versions say he had his head covered. But J.P. Falkelman, whom I mentioned before, argues for the fact that at the center of this chiasm is barefooted. And so he has, he, uh, Falkelman suggests the marismus here, namely a totality, his feet are bare, his head isn't covered, his head is bare too. So he's not only barefooted, he's bareheaded, because the whole of David is exposed in humility. It's a perfectly balanced mirror chiasm. The people themselves go up weeping along with David. In verse 31, David offers a prayer. O Lord, I pray, bring the counsel of Ahithophel to naught. And in verse 32, the answer to the prayer greets him. And so the last indication of movement brings us the chief character in David's return, namely Hushai. Climax of chapter 15 is the encounter with the man who comes to reverse David's reversal. David has been turned out of his palace, out of his kingdom. He has been reversed from being king to being a runaway, to being a fleeing fugitive. Now, who comes to identify with David with his head uncovered and covered with dust and his coat torn. Notice the fact that Hushai comes with dust on his head means that his head is uncovered. That's another point in support of Fockelman's suggestion that in verse 30, the proper translation is that David goes up uncovered, uh, uh, bareheaded, not covered of head. Hushai is characterized as David's friend in verse 37. And indeed, Hushai will turn out to be the friend in need, the friend indeed. Verse 34. David's passivity prior to this uh, rebellion is now replaced by shrewd activity. The shrewdness with which David eluded Saul now begins to kick back in again. Here he appears to be the mirror of Joab, dispatching one of his own supporters and putting ideas or words into their thoughts. Even as Joab had put words into the mouth of the woman of Tekoa 
in chapter 14. So David is now feeding ideas into Hushai, his surrogate, his his representative in absentia. The chapter closes with Hushai going west, back to Jerusalem. David going east. Notice the vectors again. From proximate to remote. From Hushai and David together to Hushai and David separated. And yet, and yet, as they are separated remotely by the vector of distance, they are united in purpose and devotion. The purpose is to defeat Absalom by defeating the council of Ahithophel. To defeat Absalom by defeating David's former chief counselor. Now, we must look at the redemptive historical paradigm and notice the organic unfolding from protological to eschatological David or the biblical theological recapitulation of the eschatological David and the protological David. What am I talking about? David leaves Jerusalem and he crosses over the brook Kidron to go eastward up the Mount of Olives. Turn to John chapter 18, verse 1. John chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus went forth. From where does he go forth? From Jerusalem. He goes over the ravine or the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. And where was the garden? On the Mount of Olives. Jesus retraces the steps of David as David faces eastward and faces potential death and exile So Jesus faces eastward, goes outside the gate, and faces potential exile and actual death. No companions with him in his humiliation. No entourage following him eastward. He goes alone, all alone, solitary Christ to defeat the evil Counsel of those who would destroy the king and usurp his kingdom. Only he can go upon this journey. No David after the flesh. No David after the flesh can bow himself to the full fury of the wrath of the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this present evil age, the Antichrist of hell. No David after the flesh can endure this battle unto death unless he is a David after the spirit, the spirit of resurrection from the dead. The eschatological David bows himself 
to the sovereignty of God in the final conflict, the final conflict of exilic death, so that from the death of exile and humiliation, he may rise alive from the dead. The eschatological David recapitulates the protological David. The protological David anticipates the eschatological David, but only the eschatological David can go into the depths of the hellish antichrists of this present evil age and defeat them on Easter morn. For the eschatological David is more than a David after the flesh. He is the very God of gods, the Son of the Most High. And so it will take a God-man. It will take a God-man, David, to reverse the reversal and let the king sit in his eternal kingdom triumphant, and no exile evermore. And that's the legacy he bequeaths to you, you who belong to this eschatological David. All right, now I'm going to rush on to chapter 16 because I have a little treat at the end if we make it here. Chapter 16, we have the character interface again. Once again, I'm looking at narrative ripples of character overlap here. We have Ziba, Shimei, it's pronounced Shimei, okay? Shim, E in your eye, okay? That's how it's pronounced. Not pronounced Shimei, it's pronounced Shimei, Abishai, Absalom, Ahithophel, and Hushai. All right, the interface with Ziba is an interface with Mephibosheth. So the rippling narrative layers, the rolling flow of narrative interfaces taking us back to the Mephibosheth narrative. It's it's implicit, if not explicit, here. Okay, Shimei is a rippling narrative interface with Saul and his house. He is, and you will notice, a Benjamite. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's your clue. Abishai, he interfaces with Saul because he was one of his soldiers. He interfaces with Abner because he joined his brother Joab in murdering Abner, chapter 3, verse 30. And he interfaces with Joab beyond the Abner incident. Absalom interfaces with David, obviously. Ahithophel interfaces with, you're going to say, Hushai, no. I want you to think of Ahithophel here interfacing with David as his counselor. And Hushai, you've already met Hushai at the end of chapter 15. He interfaces with David. Notice that those last three character figures, Absalom, Ahithophel, Hushai, they all interface with David. That's what we're building to. We're building to this climactic tension between Absalom and David and all those who are attached to them. Now, the structure of this uh, passage uh, is as follows. It's chapter 15 closed with David heading eastward from Jerusalem 
and Hushai heading westward to Jerusalem. So chapter 16 tracks David's journey to the summit. Verse 1, it is the summit of the Mount of Olives. To Bahurim, verse 5, notice your map. The top map shows you where Bahurim was, just slightly southwest of the, the wall of Jerusalem. And finally, in verse 14, to a place where he was weary and refreshed himself. All right, now from chapter 17, verse 22, you know where that place was. David is going to stop, be weary, and refresh himself where? At the Jordan River. He's going all the way to the Jordan River. Notice your map. All right, now he's, he's going to cross over the Jordan, but in chapter 17, in that, seven, in that 22nd verse, you will note that there is this urgency for David to get over the Jordan, for the ferry boats to take him over. That's an, English trans, that's an interesting translation. They're not the Washington ferry boats, <laughs> believe me. Okay, anyway, uh, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting term. It, uh, obviously, uh, it's got an English bias to it or a Western bias to it because uh, these, these, whatever boats they were, uh, you know, their planks uh, set on wood to, to uh, get the army across. Okay, so David is heading towards the Jordan, and Absalom, in verse 15, is heading towards Jerusalem. David evacuates. Jerusalem to the east, Absalom occupies Jerusalem from the west. So, verses 1 to 14, David moving eastward out of the city towards the Jordan. Verses 15 to 23, Absalom moving towards the city of Jerusalem to occupy it as an usurper, a rebel, a supplanter, an insurgent. Three characters in each of the narrative units. Verses 1 to 14 give us Ziba, Shimei, and Abishai. Verses 15 to 23 give us three characters, Absalom, Ahithophel, and Hushai. Very nice symmetrical balance. Going to develop those characters in terms of a kind of full-bodied narrative drama. Also, in this first section, verses 1 to 14, a lightword or a keyword. A key term that occurs over and over and over again. It is the word behold. It occurs six times in verses 1 to 14. Why does he use it? Why does he overuse it? Why does he keep saying to his reader, behold? Because he wants you to see it. He wants you to see the action. He wants you to see the drama. He wants you to see it as it's before your eyes, even as he describes it before the eyes of his readers. He wants you to behold. He's drawing you into it, you see. He wants you to see it in your mind. Get it. Get the picture. Okay, first, David sees, verse 1. What does David see? David sees Ziba bearing gifts. Should David beware of Ziba bearing gifts? You see. You see Ziba bearing gifts. And then, verse 2... You see them again. You see these gifts as the designated beneficiaries of Ziba on parade. 
But you ask yourself of what you see. Behold, what you see. Where did he get the stuff? And who is Ziba? Ziba was a servant of the house of Saul. Second Samuel 9, 2. And we ask ourselves, where did this servant of the house of Saul get all this parade material that he's bringing along to David's exilic retreat? Three rounds of dialogue, verses 2, 3, and 4. And the king said, and Ziba said, and the king said, and Ziba said, and the king said, and Ziba said, back and forth, back and forth. You can see it. You can hear it now. You hear this dialogue. Verse 3. Mephibosheth, your master's son, stayed in Jerusalem. Why? Ziba says, because he hoped to usurp the kingdom. He hoped to usurp the kingdom. Or is there another possibility of why Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem? Okay. He's lame on his feet. He's lame on his feet. And so Ziba... He's telling a lie. He's telling a lie. He's a deceiver, just like Absalom is. He's telling a lie. For Mephibosheth can't defend himself. And Ziba brings all of the goodies along to reinforce the fact that he is David's benefactor so that David will be my benefactor. I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine, right? Beware of Ziba's bearing gifts. Does David see? Behold, David! Does David see? No. David does not see that he's being manipulated by the slave, by the servant of his bosom friend, Jonathan's son. He hears, he not only beholds, but he hears a slanderous charge, a slanderous charge against the son of his bosom friend, Jonathan. And then he joins the liar in his slander by summarily depriving Mephibosheth of all of his inheritance without hearing Mephibosheth's side of the argument. He goes back on his pledge. David goes back on his word to show Hesed kindness to Mephibosheth and accepts the fawning prostration of the devious Ziba. David still doesn't see clearly all the time. He's blinded by poster boys. Poster boys. People that want to make an impression on you. Because they've got the hook out for you and they already know what they're going to get you to do. And if they, you don't do what they want you to do, then they're going to manipulate you or squeeze you until they make you do what they want you to do. Ziba knows the Mephibosheth is no threat because the cripple's back in Jerusalem and I can parade myself before David and David will fall for it. 
and David does. Who else had prostrated himself before David? Absalom, chapter 14, verse 20. Was that sincere? Was that sincere? No, it wasn't. It was devious, wasn't it? Is Ziba sincere when he prostrates himself? And who else received the prostration of others? Who had others prostrating themselves before him? Absalom, verse 5 of chapter 15. Is that sincere? Is he the genuine benefactor of those who prostrate themselves before him? No, Absalom is a hypocrite, only gaining support for his power play, his control freak personality, his murderous and tyrannical hatred of his own father. What's Ziba after? Ziba is after money, land, inheritance, acreage. He wants power that comes from not being a servant anymore, but being a landowner and taking over half of Mephibosheth's goods. David's reversal in being driven out of Jerusalem into exile is tragic. It is tragic, but he brought it on his own head. He brought it on his own head, and now he reverses himself as he is himself reversed. Now David reverses himself as he himself is reversed, unjustly stripping Mephibosheth of his benefits, which David once upon a time pledged to him on the ground of his covenant bond with Jonathan. David breaks his covenant word. David reverses himself by turning mercy into injustice a place at his royal table to banishment from the royal favor. Indeed, beware of Zeba's bearing gifts, and in like manner beware of kings who do not keep their word. Zeba is an opportunistic thief. And once again, David does not do the right thing. David does not do the just thing. David does not do the discerning thing. David is blinded by impression. So when David says, behold, in verse 4, he does not see it all. And the narrator is using it ironically. David once again refuses to see the con artist's who are at work on manipulating and using him. And Ziba is a con. He is a master con. Shimei. Shimei's appearance is like a one-man army. He stands alone against David, David's mighty men, David's entourage, cursing and throwing stones at the retreating king. You will notice a little bracket there in verse 5. Shimei came out, and then in verse 13, Shimei went along. In that 13th verse, you will notice that Shimei keeps a safe distance. His boldness is not proximate foolishness. He is remote enough to keep his own head. 
but his hillside is parallel. His hillside is parallel but safely remote from David's hillside route. He curses David in verse 7 as a man of blood. Is David a man of blood? Whose blood is on his hands? Uriah's blood is on his hands. But is this the blood that Shimei has in mind? Notice the structure of that charge. Man of blood in verses 7 and 8. Man of blood, A. Lord, B. All the bloodshed of Saul, C. Lord again, B prime in verse 8, and man of blood, A prime again in verse 8. Another chiasm, but the pivot of the chiasm is Saul. And in verse 11, we are told that Shimei is a Benjamite, and from what tribe did Saul arise? From the tribe of Benjamite. Shimei is coming out to wreak vengeance on David. For he is a member of the tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of Saul. And in his loyalty to the reputation of the late lamented King Saul, in his opinion, he is cursing and throwing stones at this man who defied him. Verse 9. Is Abishai a man of blood? Yes, Abishai is a man of blood on several counts. First of all, he wanted Saul's blood. Remember in 1 Samuel 26, verse 8, he asked David to allow him, Abishai, to kill Saul. And he assisted with the blood murder of Abner in 2 Samuel 3.30. He does have blood on his hands. He truly is a man of blood. But David's response to Abishai is once again to submit to the sovereignty of God, as he did in chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. Notice the incongruity here between David's humble submission to God's sovereignty and his perpetration of injustice. This is that the two are incompatible with one another, and yet they do coexist in a sinner, such as we are. And so we must also remember mercy as well, even for David, who in the case of Mephibosheth is not remembering that premise, even as he remembers it in the case of Ittai. Why? Why, David? Why aren't you consistent? Why don't you stand the same ground on the mercy of God in both cases? Because of his sinful blindness. Verses 14 and 15 contain a little hook pattern. Notice the phrase, all the people, in verse 14. And then the phrase, all the people, in verse 15. And yet the hook pattern is antithetical. What I mean by that is, you will notice that all the people in 14 are those that are loyal to David. All the people in verse 15 are those that are loyal to Absalom. An antithesis, which, of course, is the center of the drama of the narrative. And finally, a look at the broader structure of Hushai and Ahithophel. In verses 16 to 19 here of chapter 16, we have Absalom and Hushai in conjunction. 
Then in verses 20 to 22, we have the first council of Ahithophel. Okay? So we have Absalom and Hushai first. Then we have the council of Ahithophel second. And then in verses, in verse 23, we have the narrator's comment. which is that the advice of Hithophel was as of one who inquired of the Lord, there's that oracle of God, and so was the advice of Hithophel regarded. So the prominence with which Hithophel's advice is considered. In chapter 17, when we open next week, we're going to look at the details of the council of Hithophel. In verses 1 to 4, we have the council of Hithophel again. And in chapter 17, verses 5 to 14, we have Absalom and Hushai. There you have it. You have another perfect chiasm in the presentation of the council of Ahithophel and the council of Hushai. Notice the bracket. Notice the bracket. The outer bracket is the winning council. The inner bracket is the losing council. And the key, the crossover, is the narrator's comment that Ahithophel's council was as the council of an oracle of God. Crisscross, reverse, and shown not to be an oracle of God. That's the chiastic reversal. Now we ask ourselves why Ahithophel in verse 21 advises uh, uh, Absalom to ravish David's concubines. Because power over women, erotic power over women is absolute And it has always been used down through the history of the world. Subjugation of women sexually is an ascendancy to dramatic power over them. So Absalom demonstrates his dramatic power over David's concubines in order to show that he's more powerful than David. Now it fulfills... Nathan's prophecy, but it is driven by the testosterone of Absalom. And Ahithophel knows the political uh, power of it. And that's the reason he counsels him, urges him to do it. You take possession of those women in broad daylight and you will show to all Israel that you are not a man to be toyed with. Hmm. The echoes of Bill Clinton? Hmm. The echoes of John F. Kennedy? Hmm. 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 Yes. You can connect the dots. Comment, Ling. Okay, going to your revenge theory of a hit against David. 
Now this would definitely convince me that this is a revenge. One way to finally persuade it. Give me, give me the most obnoxious part of that long character comes out of here. Well, Certainly no champion for feminists, right? Go ahead. I mean, it's possible that Ahithophel knew about prophecy, correct? And that reflecting back, this is a prophecy against David because of his sin with Bathsheba, that he's throwing it out there to be fulfilled. You're giving this man far too uh, much credit for being somewhat eudaimonistic or, you know, fulfilling a prophecy. Hey, I want you to fulfill a prophecy, Absalom. Go to it. No. No, I'm saying that for him, it's a revenge mode. It's a a motive of revenge. He knows. uh, He knows that it's not that he's being God's agent. Okay. Yes, I mean, in a positive sense. Yeah, look, look, look at the text. Does Ahithophel say anything about, I remember this prophecy that was given. Now, make yourself odious to your father. Yeah. Get him where it really hurts. Yeah, Take power over those whom he has had power over. And now you'll show yourself to be a real king, a real man. Yeah, I mean, he's saying that to Absalom, but he's the agent, and he's actually the one saying, I'm going to get him where it hurts. I'm going to get Absalom where it hurts? No. Oh, I'm going to get David where it hurts. Right. And I'm going to throw this into his face using that prophecy. It's punishment for his sin with Bathsheba. Oh, okay, I see what you're doing. <clears throat> No, I think it's Balderdash again, but nonetheless. <laughs> well, I think that's the strongest point for a revenge book, Dave. Uh, you, you, your voice has been heard. Now, let's go on. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to dismiss, dismiss uh, Ling cavalierly. Uh, obviously, I'm not persuaded, but I don't want to spend time uh, dealing with that right now in detail because I want to give you a little treat. Uh, this incident of Absalom's rebellious usurpation and David's humiliating exile is recalled in Psalm 3. So let's take a look at Psalm 3 as we conclude this part of the David narrative this evening. Now, as you turn to the third Psalm, you will notice that the title does describe it as a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So This psalm comes out of the context of what we've just been reading, what we've just been thinking about. Very quickly, I'll give you two minutes. Scan the psalm. Just just do a quick scansion. Scansion means read over it very quickly and see if you find any pattern. See if you find any pattern as you read quickly through the psalm.
All right, now, you've had a chance to look at the psalm. Do you see any pattern emerging from what you've read? Verse 5 is a center where he admits all the turmoil. He says, I lay me down. You're suggesting that verse 5 is a center. Okay, let's come back to that later on. Right now, with Hebrew narrative as with Hebrew poetry, one of the things I've suggested that you take a look at is that you take a look at beginning and ending of things. All right, what word do you see in verse one? Adversaries. Adversaries. Is that balanced at the end? Focus on a word that you see in the beginning that also occurs again at the end. Lord, very good. What other word? What about the word rise or arise in verse 1? Where do you see it again? Verse 7. What other word do you see in the beginning? Salvation. Salvation. Also translated deliverance in some of your versions. Okay, that's in verse 2. Where else do you see it? You see it in verse 8, and you also see it in verse 7. You see it in save or deliver. It's the same term, so we're going to put 7 and 8 there, salvation or deliver. All right, so verses 1 and 2 have these twofold terms, which are duplicated in verses 7 and 8. In other words, the opening two verses of Psalm 3 have vocabulary, and incidentally, the Hebrew words here, kum, are exactly duplicated. The Hebrew word here for salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua. Sound like a name you know? Joshua, yes, okay, Yeshua. So the Hebrew term here and the cognate in verse 7 is the same. All right, so we have precise duplicates so that we can put verses 1 and 2 together and we can put verses 7 and 8 together as a beginning and ending relationship using similar vocabulary. And yet, are they parallel? Is this, is this relationship parallel? use of vocabulary? No, it is not. No, it is not. It is what kind of relationship? It is, it is opposite, right. It is antithetical or this is a reverse paradigm. Because in verses 1 and 2, They say no, correct? In verses 7 and 8, somebody says yes, correct? Yes. The adversaries say no, there is no salvation for him, no deliverance for him, but God is the one who says yes, God will save me, he will deliver me. All right, so we have a reverse paradigm in the relationship between the beginning and ending of the psalm, we can 
put verses 1 and 2 and 7 and 8 in relationship, reverse relationship like that, which leaves verses 3 to 6. All right, so we'll take a look at verses 3 to 6. <clears throat> now, while you're doing that, uh, let me note that verses 1 and 2 are even more tightly bound as a poetic unit than you can see, because you can't read the Hebrew, or at least some of you can't read the Hebrew. <clears throat> okay, in verse 1, the first word is Yahweh in the Hebrew. That's the first verse, first word in the first verse. In verse 2, the last word in the verse is Elohim. So verses 1 and 2 are bracketed with the Lord God. He's the beginning and ending of this unit. Now, there is no beginning and ending likewise bracket in verses 7 and 8, unfortunately, for neat paradigms. But nonetheless, that's the way it's written, and so we can't make it look any different. <clears throat> we do have a couple of other parallelisms in verses 1 and 2. Notice in verse 1 and in verse 2, the word many, if that's how it's translated, many are rising up against me, many are saying. That's a duplicate parallelism. And the word for salvation or deliverance is also uh, duplicated in verses 7 and 8. So we have in verse, uh, verse 7, save me, which is the same as deliver me. And in verse 8, salvation or deliverance belongs to the Lord. So we have another pattern of symmetrical duplication. Two many's here, all right? That's T-W-O many's. And here... Two save or salvations in 7 and 8, reinforcing this pattern that they are replicating one another in parallel. All right, verses 3 to 6. Let's look at verses 4 to 5 to begin with. Ben had suggested that 5 is the center of the, of the psalm. Let's take a look at verses 4 and 5, remembering the pattern that we've already discovered, namely a reverse pattern or a reverse parallel. As you look at verse 4 and 5, do you see a reverse pattern? I cried to the Lord, and he answered. Call out, he answered. I laid down and slept. I awoke. Reverse paradigm. Okay? The opposite of crying out, answered. The opposite of laying down, awaking. So in verses 4 and 5, we have the same parallel reverse paradigm. Only here, it's not in terms of antithesis per se. It's in terms of this complementary relationship of opposites, crying out, being answered, laying down and waking up, laying down to sleep and waking up from sleep. So verses 4 and 5 also have parallel dual reversals. So now we can put 4 and 5 as a part of our reverse paradigm. And that leaves us verse 3 and verse 6. 
But before we consider verse 3 and 6, let's notice one more thing about verses 4 and 5. You will notice that the name Lord, which again in Hebrew is Yahweh, appears in the beginning line of verse 4. And in the last line of verse 5, if you have a Bible that lists the two lines in each verse. The name for Lord or Yahweh appears in both verses 4 and 5 in the very same position in the original Hebrew text of those verses. The third word in the first line of verse 4 is Yahweh. And the third word in the last part of verse 5 is the name Yahweh. In the first colon of our reverse parallel in verses 4 and 5, in the first colon, Yahweh is in the third position. In the last colon of verses 4 and 5, Yahweh is in the third position. He anchors verses 4 and 5, by being in the same position at the opening colon and in the concluding colon of the, of the parallel. Well, verse 3 and 6 are left. All right, now let's look at verse 3. Who is round about the poet in verse 3? Lord. Yahweh. What is about the poet? What is around about the poet? The shield. The The Lord has a shield round about him. And what is the result of the poet being shielded by the Lord who is round about him? Pardon? He will not fear. He will not fear? No. Verse 3. I want the language of verse 3. He lifts up his head. Okay. Like you would be lifting up your head above a shield, huh? Hmm, interesting image, correct? Because the shield is around you, and you lift up your head over it because you're shielded by it. All right, now verse 6. Who is about the poet in verse 6? Ten thousands of people, correct? And what have they done to the poet? They have set themselves against him round about. Round about. And what is the result of him being set round about by 10,000 of peoples? Ling? He is not afraid. Notice the relation between verse 3 and verse 6. They are the reverse of one another. The Lord, as the shield, raises the head of the poet above those who are round about him so that he does not fear ten thousands. Verse 3 and verse 6 are also integrated as a part of our reverse paradigm. This poem then moves from verses 1 and 2a to verse 3b, to verses 4 and 5c, and Ben was right about the center, it is 4 and 5, not just 5, to B prime, verse C, to A prime, verses 7 to 8. A reverse paradigm in a mirror progression or a mirror reflection of antithesis.
And that reverse paradigm, that reverse structure, is epexegetical. That is, it is telling you the reverse providence of God. It is telling you a theological truth. God the Lord reverses the history of David and Absalom. The enemies of the one whom the Lord saves and delivers are smitten, shattered, and destroyed. The poet sings a song of reversal, historic reversal, redemptive historical reversal. The true king, the true sufferer, is vindicated, he is lifted up, he is saved and delivered from all his enemies round about him. And the eschatological vector of the psalm, salvation comes from the eschatological dimension, from the realm of the eschatological Savior, God the Lord, from his holy hill or holy mountain, from the city of God eternal in the heavens, from the one all-glorious whose glory lifts up the heads of his beleaguered, oppressed servants lifts up their heads to the glory, to the kabod Yahweh, to the eschatological glory of heaven. The taunt of the adversary is reversed. It is reversed in a psalm of exaltation to the eschatological savior, the eschatological deliverer, the eschatological Yeshua, the eschatological David, who is the savior of the protological David. And Psalm 3 tells you that. The structure of the psalm tells you that. So much for treats. Now, questions or comments? Do you have any more badinage for me, Ling? I've cowed you into silence? No. <laughs> I think I've said a lot. <laughs> you have indeed, dear sister. So, grist for the mill. All right, Lord willing, next week, 17 and 18. In two weeks, hence, we will have a week's break because there will be no seminary classes that week. We'll have our spring break, but I'll remind you of that uh, as we move towards the first week in March.